this is Adam Hall and you're listening to the Half Court Press podcast. Hi, I'm Natalie Haythorn-Twitt and I play for the England Roses Wing Attack and Goal Attack and you're listening to the Half Court Press podcast. This is Ryan Gosmark from Belgium Rugby and you're listening to Half Court Press podcast. Welcome to the fourth season of the Half Court Press podcast. In this series, View from the Touchline, we talk to coaches from different backgrounds about their philosophies on sport, the techniques used when teaching, and their approach to their job. In episode four, we talk to football coach Luke Thorpe. Recently, Luke has been working over in Mexico City. The Half Court Press has partnered up with Wright Performance to bring our listeners a competition for hockey equipment. If you share this podcast three times on social media before May 31st, then you will be entered into a prize draw to win either a handguard or a pair of shin pads. You can find the Half Court Press on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Looking for a new hockey stick? Don't want to pay all the odds for a top of the range stick? After playing hockey for years, we've decided we'd try and do just that. We now have our own stick at a price that we think is competitive and have a range of three 100% carbon sticks. If you want to see more, go to our website at rightperformance.co.uk. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Half Court Press podcast, Coaching Specials. Uh, I am sat here with Luke Thorpe on the phone, who is based currently out in Mexico City under quarantine. Um, hello Luke. How you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. I'm getting a bit bored staring at, uh, <laughs> out my window, basically, in a, in a very small town in south east of Scotland. <laughs> um, basically, all we have here are seagulls and cats that go past us, really. So, uh, um, yeah. That's some quality wildlife. <laughs> yes. You should, you, should get, you should get a pen and a pencil and, or, or in paper and start drawing things. I think that's, that's inspirational. See, seagulls are the root of all, of all inspiration, though. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we've. we've Half Court Press podcast has taken a, a, a divergence from. Uh, from, from from coaching philosophy to uh, <laughs> wildlife, wildlife watch. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, <laughs> what do you have your window, Thorpey? Um, um, you know what? Other apartments. It's, it's, it's very mundane. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, the windows face out onto other people's lives. But because we're all doing the same, it's not really much to, to comment on. Or even draw about. I'll be honest. Yeah. So, it's, it's very, it's very, it's very Groundhog Day. Yeah. Sounds like the start. Sounds like the start of a Hitchcock movie. Um, yeah. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Your your background, where you're from, where you're living now. Who are you? Sure. Scotland, um, grew up 
grew up in, in Derby, went to school in Derby and, and then sort of moved on to Manchester Uni um, and, and from there obviously, you know, took off and, and if, if I'm being honest, now at, at 31, haven't really lived in the UK for a good nine, ten years since, since graduating from uni. Um, so where I'm from now, it's always one of those tricky questions, you know, where people say, oh, well, you know, where are you, where are you from? And I'm, I'm always like, oh, you know, that's, that's, for me now, I'm not sure. Definitely, definitely British, um, but where, where I'm from now, it's, it's tough to say sometimes, you know, absolutely. What's the Scottish link and why did you move to England? Uh, well, um, I was born in Aberdeen because my, my dad... Got a got a job up there. He was he was working for basically uh, my dad's a consultant. He was working for um, a service for the oil rigs, um, which obviously took him all the way up to Aberdeen. We all moved there with him. That's when I was born, um, and and really I was been there for about a year and a half. So then he, he got a job for Pirelli, and that took us took us back down down to to England, and, and from there we. We sort of, you know, settled in, and, and I went obviously with my parents. They wanted to be going to the same school, and my brother to go to the same school. Um, so that's why we stayed in the same place until we were done. Yeah. So, so you're a football coach. Um, who's your team? My team is Nottingham Forest for my sins. So um, from Derby, from Aberdeen to Derby, how do how do you get a Nottingham Forest connection there? Question. You know what? I should be a Leeds fan. My my whole family. Uh, my parents are from Leeds, and they're uh, basically big Leeds fans. My brother, therefore, by association, was a Leeds fan. Um, but he he loved and loathed this story about how basically he he bullied me into not being able to support Leeds. Um, so I should be a Leeds fan at the time. Uh, you listen to your older brother, don't you, when you're young, um, rightly or wrongly. Um, so therefore, I looked for a closer team who were doing well at the time, and, and that was the legendary time of, of Stan Collymore and Brian Roy up front for Forest. Um, they were hanging in goals for fun with Ian Wone supplying them. Um, so therefore, it was. I think they were they were fifth in the Premier League. So not a glory hunter by any means, but yeah, that's that's sort of who I who I sort of fell on and, and have ever since and I was lucky enough to have a season ticket during my sixth form years where Forrest got relegated and then failed to, to get back up from League One which was a wondrous time to be a Forest fan um, and then I went off to uni so yeah I still follow them still follow them now who, who was the coach back then? it was Gary Megson believe it or not it was some of the most mundane defensive football I've ever seen at the city grounds um, but you know what? You you go and support your team, and it was a great laugh at the stands, even if the football was awful. I <laughs> think <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it was it was it more about the beer afterwards, was it? Um, you know what? As a kid, it's the it's the innocence of youth. You've got something else to think about. You're not you're not dwelling on football like you do as an adult. Whereas now, I think the the, the wins are great, and the losses are even worse. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, got some hope. We're we're you know firmly in the playoffs. 
at one time we were flirting with automatics and, and hope's a dangerous thing in football, as you know. <laughs> I'm a Spurs fan, don't take that, that, that away from us, please. I mean, I, I, I have... Uh, I've been to the footy with you, with you Thorpe. It's uh, it's it, it's as much about the uh, the social activities and uh, then uh, the, the, you, were, you were very fortunate enough to go to the, the the box at the Azteca, weren't you? That was a, that was a fantastic experience, and, yeah. and actually one that's never been repeated, even even obviously since I've been here longer. I've, I've been in sort of what's classed the Coca Cola lounge at the, the Azteca, but I mean. Going in the box was just an unbelievable experience. Yeah, you, know, you work with me, Thorpe, mate. You get the uh, get the uh, get the perks, don't you? Uh, yeah, let's let's not go and get into that. Uh, <laughs> perks is one word for it. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so you you grew up in Derby. Uh, I did. You, you you you. It sounds like it sounds like you. Decided to support Forest almost almost on a dare. Um, yes. Um, did you play much football growing up? Did you play many many other sports growing up? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think in in obviously being being in the UK, football is the number one sport. I was always football mad, um, and I mean, I I never want to say that my dad forced it upon me, but I think indirectly my dad's interest and, and he got to a semi-pro level so I think he was always very pro football and, and he was still playing when I was a kid um, I used to go and watch him play so I think you know indirectly that interest in football arose and, and therefore yeah I, I mean I played from I think it was from five or six years old like like most people in, in the UK in the 90s um, and from there yeah, I mean I, I got to, to county level I got I got to a, a, a you know a decent ish level. Um, never, never set the, the the English football world alight, I, I'd say. But yeah, I mean, I, I definitely played football all the way through school, and, and then on a uni played played football at Manchester Uni, and, and yeah, from from there definitely. I mean, I think other sports. I I mean, my my mum was very passionate about me learning to swim. And I went from being a kid who, who wouldn't put his face in the water because I hated it in my eyes to, to actually being a, a decent enough swimmer, but it was it was only for leisure. Um, and then, you know what, the other sport for me was always badminton. I, I was very, very interested in badminton. I found it very fun. I was lo- lucky enough to have a couple of mates who, who liked to, to rent a court at the, the local sports centre and go and play badminton. Um, and, and that was always a nice, different different sport to play um, that, that I obviously found really interesting. Yeah, how important do you think it is for um, uh, a player play development to, have to do more than one sport? Oh, massive. Massive. I'm, I'm a big believer in multi-sports. Big, big believer. I think, you know, specialisation is, is is something that we, we need to address and I don't think we're we're probably doing enough um, and depending on depending on the model, for example, a pay-to-play model, the, the more you can get them sometimes to play, the higher your fees. And I think by association, that's it's not a good thing. Um, I mean, if you look at, for for example, the the US model pay-to-play, it's 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 very well known, and it it almost turns kids 
in decline, uh, and therefore they, they're buying for their time, and they want them to be there three, four times a week. And you, you think he's only seven or she's only seven, and 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 should be sort of spreading their wings on a lot of different activities. But obviously, through through the constraints of, of finances now. As you know, we're seeing a lot of early specialisation because parents can only afford to pay for one sport and, and they're sort of putting all that into one sport maybe for, for five, ten years, depending on the kid's interest. And, and I think, you know, uh, I'm sure you were the same, but I was, I was very lucky to, to have access to a lot of different sports through my school PE programme and, and obviously then with, with it being very, very cheap, and accessible to go and, for instance, rent a squash court or rent a, a badminton court, you know, £2.50, I think it was back in the day, I'm sure my age, um, or, or go swimming for a quid, you know, and, and, I, and I don't, I'm not sure in the UK what it's like now, but I'm, I'm speaking about the patient play model, I think sometimes it's, it's, it's sort of forcing parents' hands to, to say, look, it's, it's this or that, it's not all, and I think that's a shame, it's a real shame. In a in a previous series of uh, of ours of, of the Half Court Press podcast, um, I was speaking to uh, Paul Schuttenbelt, who's, who's also worked all over the world and sometimes in developing countries, uh, as well as America. And he was saying in America, it's real. It's a real shame because um, because of this uh, pay to play type of attitude that, that they yeah, they have. You have teams who actually live quite uh, who are actually based quite close to each other. Play in different leagues and travel quite far because of the, the, the type of league, the type of pay to play league that they're, they're in. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's a completely different concept that, that I'm used to. And when I, when I sort of started learning, especially like you say about travel teams and, and the lengths they'll go to to sort of, for, for better or worse, find a competitive league and, and what they feel is. is bettering the players to find that environment. I mean, obviously, with the US and the scope of the country, it's, it's, it's a massive country, and obviously a travel league can be, can be four or five hours on the road and no one, no one bats an eyelid. You know, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's tricky, and, and it's a different model. I think that, like I said, I mean, we could go down the rabbit hole and, and talk about pay-to-play models. And, and it's, like I said, I, I just think, for me as a Brit, it's a very different model. And it's, it's, it therefore forces a completely different sort of mindset and, and environment than probably I was, I was used to or familiar with, definitely. In t- but also in terms of uh, sporting specialisation, I've, I've, I've recently read a book which I... I, I I've, I remember you being quite keen on the Michael Calvin No No Hunger in Paradise. Yes, yes, and, myself. And specialisation comes up uh, a, a number of times in that book. Yes. Um, yeah, that's right. What's it, what, what's it, do you have any? Do you remember what your views on on that were, were, were at the time when you read it, or? It's very similar to, to almost what we're experiencing now with with academy football in the UK, and I think if if you're not wholly in, you're not deemed as in the system, and, and therefore you have to commit to 
you know, those two, three, four times a week, whatever, depending on the age you are, you have to commit to all these extra uh, off the field um, activities, you know, with, with EPPP, there's a lot more sort of reflection and, and analysis, and, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, I'm just saying in terms of in terms of what now the workload is for a parent, a kid, when, when you're in and what they class now is, uh, I'm not a big fan of this word, but the elite environment is, is, is just, there's a lot of, a lot to commit to and therefore indirectly it, it, it takes away and diverts your attention from from other things that maybe that that child is, is interested in. I, I, again, speaking from my experience, I was, you know, I, I trained once or twice a week and then and then I went swimming or I played badminton or whatever. Like, and I, and I think that's that's very important. And I know there's a lot of academies now that do multi skills um, programs, and I think that's fantastic that they they get them in the gym and they're, they're, they're on trampolines and they're doing a lot of little fun, you know, um, you know, fundamental movement exercises. I think that's fantastic, and and they're very fortunate to be able to do that. But I think back in the day. Um, was it the same? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But now, I think I think you have to sort of come back to your question. You have to commit. You have to commit to a sport. If, if uh, and unfortunately, then that's the snowball effect because the parents go, well, you know, he or she are, they're doing well in that system, and therefore we need to keep keep you know uh, committing to to this cause. Um, and then obviously you go on to dropout rates and everything else, and, and be told. You know, sorry, it's it's not your time to, to stay in the academy and everything else, and that breaks kids. Um, but you know, like without taking too many shots at academy football, I think I think that's that's what Michael Calvin was getting at, and the fact that you know you have to you have to fully commit um, to the cause, or really you'll you'll be out as, as quickly as you're in. Mm. Right, so let's circle back a bit. I think we went. You've you've jumped a few uh, sections of, of my questions here. Uh, <laughs> we've, got, we've, got, we've gone from some section one basically to uh, to section section five. Um, so let's circle back to uh, your sports education. What courses have you have you been on, on any coaching courses? What courses courses have you been on? Um, what did you study at uni? Um, did any of these change your perception on sport and change your perception on coaching? Yeah, I mean, as you said, I went to, I went to Manchester Uni. Um, I, I studied international business and, and basically through there, um, that, that's really where I got on the, the coaching ladder. Um, there was a, a sports volunteer scheme in Manchester uh, University and basically that was you you basically went and, and volunteered your time and and gave gave back to the community so to speak as, as a university and because of that the uni put you through a few a few courses so yeah that's that's really where I started um I think like most people in, in the UK or in, in England especially, you know, I, I went through the, the DFA system and, and for me at that time, I suppose like the the real difference that was happening with the FA at that time was, was the youth modules, um, which for me were, were fantastic. 
they were fantastic. I think it put a lot more focus on on player first, on on psychological and social factors rather than the sort of X's and O's of, of, of level ones and level twos. And, and yeah, I was I was very fortunate to to get on those sort of early courses via via the club I work for, Fletcher Moss, which you may or may not know. But yeah, it's, it, it's I mean Dave over there, Dave Horrocks, he's doing a fantastic job. Um, with with kids and my, my first sort of exposure to coaching was was this sort of community scheme where where any kid could play. I think it was I think it was one pound fifty two pounds or whatever, and and they they could come and train once once a week on a, on a Saturday, and and us as coaches were there to, to sort of you know help out. And I, and I think if we're talking about did, did any of the courses change my perception? Yeah, definitely. The, the youth modules were were massive for that because I think they were so different. It was such a different approach. I mean, you're talking about 2009. Um, I did those, and it was it was very very focused, heavily focused on on the different side of the game, um, and, and it certainly opened my eyes to the fact that coaching is more than X and O's, and there is actually a person in front of you for sure. Yeah. So. It sounds like you're talking a bit more about psychology and uh, emotional and social development here. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, for better or worse, the, the level one is, when I was doing it, was very basic. Um, I couldn't comment on it now. I think the FA improved it a lot. And um, from what I hear now, they've, they've definitely integrated the, the youth modules into the same curriculum, which I think is a good thing. Um, I was doing the youth much yeah, but like you say, it was it was very psychologically focused, very socially focused in terms of this is the player in front of you and, and what's their what's their why, you know, how how are you going to to sort of approach them rather than approach the session. And and as you know, you know, courses back when when we were doing them was very much about this cone goes there, that player goes there, this is your exercise. Now you need to do it and I'm gonna tick boxes or put crosses in boxes that you don't you don't hit. And and I think for me the big thing about the youth modules was that it removed the pressure because it was a it was more like a, 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 a you know, it wasn't pass fail and, and you basically went and you were you were all ears because there was no pressure. Are you not listening for those those key things where you're like if I don't remember that, I won't pass the course. Um, which, which I mean, I think then, you know, that's how you learn best. You remove the pressure. And, and it was kind of fun. Like, I was, I was fortunate for Manchester Ivy and Bateman, who's gone up to much better things now. And he was a fantastic course tutor for the, for the youth module one. Um, and it, it was a great, great course. And the fact that, again, there was no test at the end, there was no pass or fail, it, it just made everyone more relaxed and open because it wasn't... You weren't. I mean, sometimes you know you feel like you've been watched, or you feel like if I say that, that could go against me. Where it made it more of a more open dialogue. Um, for me, it was a much much different way of, of of being on a coaching course for sure. We'll we'll circle back to this later on yeah. in terms of uh, coaching clinics. But in, is it was this very much of um, there's no wrong answer. Let's just discuss it and move the conversation exactly. on. Exactly, yeah. And and also you're trying to you're trying to figure out what your own views are because, you know, at <coughs> that time it, it was one of the first times you've been exposed to to what player psychology is, what 
what psychology of football is, what what socially, what social aspects factors there are within within a group within football. You know, is it a kid? Is it a teenager? Is it an adult? And absolutely, putting that putting that player at the the centre of the focus was 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 such a different change um, compared to, like I say, the the traditional. Um, FA coaching courses, especially what I'm speaking for in 2000, 2009, 2010, where you're you're very much coaching to a a structure, and you've got to make sure that you tick the boxes. So, in terms of um, transitioning from playing to coaching, um, your current job isn't so much in international development. It seems to be it seems to be vocationally different to your academic background. Um, I think that's a good observation. <laughs> <laughs> um, when when did you decide? When did you start to think that this is maybe something that you wanted to get paid to do? Yeah, I mean, I think that was always the goal. Um, how realistic that was, I think, as a twenty-two-year-old was was very open to debate. I mean, I think doing the sports volunteer scheme, and for me, the catalyst was going to all the the grad scheme. Um, job fairs almost, I went to one at the ball ring, I went to one in Manchester, you know, you've got all these companies around with, with their almost market store-less places with brochures and leaflets going, do you want to apply for us, and, and then you're thinking about assessment centres, you're thinking about, you know, all those, all that process, the, the five, six stage process to get a job in, in the corporate world, and it just didn't excite me, whereas for me, when I, when I was coaching, yeah, and use that phrase very lightly at my at Fletcher Moss. I was very much a helper and assisting. Um, but oh. it just it felt great. And, and and that for me was why I got into coaching because I just thought, you know, like give it a go, roll the dice and see. Um, was was the aim to get paid for it? I, I think yet as as my journey progressed. But at the start I just thought, this is what I enjoy. This is what I want to do. Like I don't wanna be in a suit. Even though, ironically, I'm doing business, um, I was I was very much. I just wanted to do something I enjoyed, naively or not. <laughs> As a 23 year old, that that's basically was my was my thought process. Well, you're still in a suit for P, mate. It's a, but it's a tracksuit. That's very true. Yeah, I mean, well, there's a lot of fashion people out there who would debate that fact that a tracksuit is not a suit. But yeah, it's very true. <laughs> Well, in uh, I think I think in Central America it's probably more, more t-shirts and shorts, but it's um. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so uh, who are you who who are you coaching with now? Uh, what is your current role? Yeah, so I mean, as you know, having worked for yourself, I I'm, I'm at Thought Academy, um, in in Mexico City. It's a it's an English speaking football academy in in Mexico City. Um, my current role is is the official title is, is technical director, um, and <laughs> we we can or, or won't go down the rabbit hole of what that really means. Uh, but yes, that's that's my current role here in Mexico City. I've I've now come up to four years. Uh, well, basically, you uh, you made when I was working for Academy, you made sure that I did all my session plans and. That's right. <laughs> That's right, yeah, we had, we had many a phone call, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> Can you do my work for me, please, Thorpe? Um, <laughs> Is this okay, 
I don't think they ever called you sir. I don't, you know, we weren't, we weren't quite saluting you on the uh, sideline. No, <laughs> I think you could have used each other a few different things, but it was. Uh... Was that on the phone or after? <laughs> I think both. I think both. It was. Uh... <laughs> um, but um, but basically, it was a uh, long lines of an overview and helping to um, progress progress philosophies. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think Thought Academy was at the time. Uh, I mean. I, I sort of accepted this role after my first year where it was where I was coaching three teams and, and then the academy director Mike came and, and basically just look I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about making a change and I'd really like you to be part of it and, and drive it forward so that was sort of the start of the process of, of really restructuring everything it, it was a root and branch approach to to the for a better word modernize modernize the, the, the sort of processes. Um, and make it more long term um, in its approach. I would say that's that was our biggest challenge. Our very yeah, it was, a, it was a big challenge for sure. And how's how's that gone? Uh, I, I think yeah. I mean, naturally, nothing nothing happens overnight. Um, I think if you're looking at that year being year one, it was a big big challenge to get. Um, not to yeah to get the coach on board to change their mindsets and, and basically be a lot more player for you know player centered player focused rather than at the time from my witness it, it, when I first joined it was very silo uh, you, you know like uh, which isn't a bad thing as a coach you have a lot of, of, of sort of scope for for change and, and for everything like that but yeah, there, there was no unification in terms of the direction of the academy. Um, so it was a big, big challenge that first year, um, my second year, to, to sort of educate the coaches on now we have curriculums. Now it's not about sort of coaching what you've seen from the match. It's about that long-term approach. Mm. Um, and, and therefore, yeah, I mean, you know, it was difficult for me because I'll be the first to hold my hands up and say that at that time my Spanish wasn't that good. Um, as you know, Taylor, we, we had... Um, pretty much half and half in terms of, of British or, or English-speaking coaches and, and Mexican coaches. And you, you're trying to instill change in, mm. in, in a language that they don't understand. Mm. And, and therefore, it, it, took, it took a lot more. And I think I was very naive in the changes I thought I could make without being able to speak more of the language. Um, but now, I must say, yeah, we're in a, we're in a very good place. I think we've, we've, we've definitely weathered the storm. We've stuck with it. So, so in terms of um, moving moving things on and making those changes, um, yeah. and I, I suppose to a certain extent of trying of getting everybody in in a similar similar place, how important were are 
were and are the coaching clinics that you put on? Oh, they were massive. They were massive. I, I think if you talk about clinics, they, you know, it was it was about coach education for all. Um, without, I tried, I tried really hard to make it a place of of trust. Um, I think I've, I've forgotten who said it, but what I really wanted to do was was make it an environment where people could say, "I disagree," "I don't," "I don't agree," and that's okay, um, which before it was almost a, I'm going to say this, away from the field to someone else, not to you, or I just won't say it at all. And, and I think like the coaching clinics, as you experienced, were, I, I, I think they, it was about creating that environment of, of trust and, and group thinks and, and sharing ideas. And, and naturally, yes, they were also about reinforcing um, and educating about the philosophy and the methodology as well. Now, how you were describing your uh, your coach education from the early days when you first started out, going on the courses where there was no wrong answer. Yes. How similar was that experience to what you're developing now? Yeah, I, I think I think that's actually what what sort of inspired me in terms of that that environment about you know it's say say what say what you think say what you feel. And, and don't hold back, and, and let's have a discussion about it. As you say, there's no wrong answer. Um, and, and I think, obviously, first off, you need to have relationships as, as a coach and staff, and you need to have trust, because you're not really going to say what you feel and what you think if you don't have a trusting, open relationship with, with the coaching team. Um, and, and I think that was, that was vital. And that, again, that took time. And, and to be honest, that took a few few recruitment choices because I think sometimes, you know, you have to sort of bring in those people who can help accelerate that culture. Um, and, and obviously, culture is a big word. But yeah, I think I think for me, it was it was about healthy debate. It it wasn't about the philosophy. It's it's black and white. The methodology is black and white. If you do this, then that's wrong. Or if you do this, then you get a pat on the back. Um, and I, I think through that we really progressed, and also it helped unify the sessions in terms of, as you know, we were we were planning at least one or two sessions a week for, yeah. for an age group where we all did it and everyone everyone coached it because we were all in agreement, um, and that was the time time for people to say I don't agree or, or whatever. So yeah, I think you're right. I think that that culture of, of no wrong answer. Of, of really being open and honest and saying what you really feel and think about was, was crucial um, to, to sort of progressing our, uh, our philosophy and methodology as well, for sure. We've spoken a little bit about the effect you're having on, on, the, on the coaching staff and, and the, um, the, the, the coaching staff team. Um, yes. And the, and the effect, the changes you've been making there what changes have you been making in terms of uh, the playing environment for the participants? Oh, I mean, yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think that that's ongoing as you as, as you move forward. But I think the key thing, <laughs> uh, I, I know there's there's a lot of people who who have a sort of opinion on it. But for me, it was it was always about get rid of the line drills, get rid of the ABCs, get rid of that sort of structured SAQ that, that for me when you look at it 
thinking of in three hours contact time a week, two one and a half hour sessions. It, it just it it wasn't, in my opinion, the most important thing for a for say a nine year old, even a thirteen year old, to be doing. Um, so I, I think that was the first thing that we did in terms of you know that was the methodology. We we introduced a, a structure, a new structure that still gave catches a lot of room for creativity but it was as you know you know you're doing your warm-up and it was it was technique work um semi-opposed or opposed no no you know you pass here you run here um and, and then therefore it was it was introducing your your topic for for the session rather than it being isolated or, or just completely apart from the session like there was for me there was there was no no need for that you know usual as a way to to introduce your your session and go from there with with your activities and then your small sided games 100 and then you're constantly introducing and reinforcing and, and scaffolding on what you've already introduced um rather than it being here's a cone here's a cone here's a cone and run there run there run there and you know as 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 we've seen in of all the literature literature coming out you know it's you, you you don't want to be teaching the players to do the drill you want to be teaching or hopefully the players are learning to to solve problems and and i think that was the the focus we wanted to to sort of get a lot more problems to solve and their decisions to make into the sessions yeah well, for sure for the players to learn in a in, more, in a more sort of intellectual Exactly. Yeah, I mean, Fine. I think I think that that key question is why, and I think sometimes you know you you need to ask why you need to ask why they're doing it, um, and and also be be open to the fact that there's not one right answer. I think sometimes we as coaches we we we, we fire loaded questions even though they're open questions, and, and we feel like we're doing. We're doing a service to the players because I'm I'm not looking for a yes or no answer. I'm not looking for a was it pass or dribble, but we're still throwing loaded question, open questions. What what how you know rather than saying how did you feel, what did you see, and then you're still looking for that. Well, I saw him run. Oh, that's the right answer. Whereas I think if you're really going to work on it, you've got to ask open questions where you're you're happy and accepting of of the answers that, that they've seen because that's that's their learning. That's what they've learned, that's what they've seen. And it's not I'm looking for you to regurgitate the knowledge that I've imparted on you. <laughs> which is which is difficult. It's difficult because you get into the, the whole the whole sort of remove your ego from from your session and that that's very difficult to do sometimes as a coach. Yes. We all have egos. We all have egos. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, I think it was like I say, it was a root and branch approach to sessions to try and unify how they looked while still giving the coaches the the overall say in, in terms of what went in their sessions because they know their teams, they know their players, and that's their style. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, you've got to, you've got to trust people to do what what they're what they're doing. So it wasn't about sort of making robots. It was more about making sure that there was a structure. And, and you know, I always class it as here's a skeleton, and and then go away and, and sort of put the meat on it. And and that was for me my my sort of approach with with reforming the the sessions and, and the structures. You you mentioned small-sided games. Yes. Why? 
short-sighted games. Uh, I think for me, the, you know, you could you could go off many a many a thought, but for me, I think in in sort of a, a simple way, short-sighted games are representative of, of the game. And if you're talking about representative learning designs, and and you know, you're you're exposing them to realistic decisions and realistic problems to solve. Yes, it might be four v four, it might be three v three, it could even be one v one. But I think obviously therefore number one is opposed and therefore it's it's you know counter counteractive, it's it's active in terms of what you're what they're facing. Everything you do affects what they do and vice versa. And therefore it's it's a representative learning design in terms of representative the game, realistic and, and there's lots of random repetition. So so for me, it's it's about making sure as a coach you put context to that small side of game. You can't say here's one v one, here's here's two goals. You know, like in my opinion, you can't you can't just do that. It's, it's not the worst thing to do. It's a lot better than standing in lines. You get one touch every sixteen goes. But at the same time, I think if you're really going to harness the the power of small side games, you've got to got to give that context and you've got to sort of paint the picture and say look here's that jigsaw piece we've taken it out this is what this is what we're doing and then we're going to put it back in and can you can you sort of show that transfer of learning in a game you know and that that's obviously the holding breath of coaching <laughs> it's not an easy thing to do um, and, and we all get it wrong we all we all sometimes just completely miss the mark um, but yeah that's the small side of games for me I mean I, I think they're, they're crucial you know, like if, if if you ask any kid or any any adult what's their favourite what's their favourite exercise activity of a session, they're, they're not going to say, I really like when I passed away and I run to be, uh, or I really like when you you stop the session a lot. They say it's it's a game, and and I think that's why small side games are so important because they're a game. It's, it ebbs and flows, and and then it's down to you as a coach how clever you are to to sort of implement what you're trying to sort of guide them towards. And that, that's why it's also against so important, for sure. So I've spoken to a few coaches who have similar viewpoints to you and and the idea of opportunity and repetition has come up. The yeah. random repetition, repetition phrase hasn't come up before. What does, what does that mean to you? I think random repetition for me is that you're experiencing probably the same sort of opportunity to to uh, learn but obviously applying it to a different framework and I, and I think that's what we've got to be important uh, sorry emphasizing in terms of you've you've got to teach them strategies rather than processes <clears throat> and, and what I mean by that is that you've got to give them strategies that they can apply and, and figure out how to apply to a problem rather than a process where it's like if he runs at me you go to the left and if he runs at you like this, you're going to do a step over and go to the right. Because what happens when it changes? What happens when it doesn't look exactly like that? And therefore, when you talk about random repetition, that's the application of those strategies in terms of this is different, but it's similar, and I can still sort of sometimes do the same thing, or do I do something different? And that's the learning by, by exploration. And I, and I think for me, like, repetition's important, but, you know, Arsene Wenger's very famous quote, he said, like, no, no football action, it's ever the same again. And I, I feel like that's why repetition is so important, because otherwise you're, 
you're doing a disservice to the, the players because you're basically saying here's the repetition in a controlled environment. And I'm not saying there's not a place for that. It's very dependent on the players, the session, where they are in their learning, absolutely. But at the same time, random repetition is, is what allows that transfer of learning. Um, so, yeah, for me, it's, it's, it's massive. It's massive. So- Sorry, in terms of, um, moving on slightly, in terms of uh, a competitive match environment, how much, of a, how much of an effect can a coach have on a competitive match uh, and uh, during the game on a, on a player or, or the team? Or is it more to do with the training beforehand? Are we talking on-the-day coaching or versus um, cognitive coaching? interesting one. I, I think it depends how you view matches, first off. I think, are you viewing them as, as, as sort of an extension of the, the learning environment, therefore it's, it's an extension of the training, and therefore you will you will coach it differently, or depending on the age, depending on the competition, and, and obviously the environment, are you therefore coaching to, to win? to compete well, you know like and i think yes the match day environment is is you know you don't want to just train to train uh, the match the match day environment for me is 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 crucial to to their learning because it's it's the most random environment for them to confirm their learning and also to experiment to explore and, and to make mistakes and, and i think you know if you're talking about matches for me personally, I see them as, a, as an extension of the learning environment. I like to the players to take the lead. Um, you know, usually team talks are what did we do in training, and it's very open questions you know, for me. And, and and I prefer players to to guide the team talks rather than me giving a an any given Sunday team talk that that sometimes we feel <laughs> feel is is needed. It's, you know, it's just not. It's just not, especially those these days as well. So you haven't got a little, a little pocketbook of uh, Churchillian speeches in, uh, in your bag? You know what? I would love to. I would love to have those. Um, but I think it would be very lost on the kids' side. <laughs> 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 yeah, absolutely. Get a Spanish translation version, you know? Sometimes 
again, we come back to ego. You, you've got to be careful with that. You've got to take it, take it out of the equation if you really want to coach for development, which is my focus. And and that's not that's not the same for everyone. I understand that. But for me, it's it's about being player led on match days, just like in training, because you know otherwise you're you're teaching them sort of one thing during training and, and then in match days find out it's about me now it's about winning or it's about it's about being competitive um, and here's how you're going to do it and now you 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 take away the, the sort of opportunity for their voice and it's all about me as a coach because I know everything and here it is I'm, I'm imparting my knowledge on you <laughs> it's, it's, it's difficult and, and I've been a corporate of that for sure I think when I started out I, I thought those like you say those Churchill and any given Sunday team talks really worked and, and you could rally the troops and they'll go out and, and play for you but I, I, you know it's, it's part of your learning journey as a coach I'm sure Thorpe, thank you very much. Pleasure. This has been a Half Court Press production by Teo McLeod.